welcome to the September intermission edition of Fuds on Film podcast. I am Craig Eastman and with me tonight, Scott Morris. Hello. And Drew Tavendale. Hello. We will be talking to you on this podcast uh, about Legend, uh, the recent uh, Tom Hardy film currently doing the round in cinemas. We will also be talking a little bit about The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and on a catch-up style we'll also have something to say, um, or probably quite a few things to say, about Fast and Furious 7. Without, without further ado, uh, let's get going. Uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. then. Um, modern cinema adaptation courtesy of your man Guy Ritchie um, of the uh, 1960s TV series of the same name, Scott. Is, uh, is Mr. Ritchie continuing his recent run of form here following the Sherlock films, or is he heading back into uh, Revolver territory? Uh, guy Ritchie is not my man. Well, actually, uh, to be fair, it takes a lot for me to actually hate a Guy Ritchie film. I didn't even mind Revolver all that much. It uh, took Madonna to really drag him down to the gutter as far as I was I like to think that I dislike Revolver, and then I remind myself, I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> is that the Jason Statham one? Yeah, with yes, really yeah, I have seen that. Yeah. I don't think. But, um, I just remember Adam and Joe making fun of it in his uh, commentary track with the heavy-handed chess metaphors. <laughs> it's not a glittering moment in his career, but I don't think it was that horrible. Mm. But uh, the man from Uncle is, uh, I think, will be remembered as one of his middling affairs. Mm. It is, of course, as you say, based on the sixties, uh, seventies, no sixties, a uh, TV show. It was, which I barely remember. It was on uh, continual repeat when I was a kid. But I was going to say, not, not, from, first, not from first airing. We might it was one out. of those things, it was always like six o'clock weekdays in BBC Two, wasn't yeah, it? So it was that was, kind of tea time slot. Yeah, thing, one day was it? Star Trek, one day was the time tunnel, the next day was the man from Uncle. It was always yeah. in that sort of time slot. I, say, I can only barely recall that, but um, yeah, from some research, it, was, it, it follows a similar kind of theme to this film. It started off being a relatively serious drama before broadening out into outright camp uh, parody territory uh, by the end of it. And that's a fairly good representation of the film. Uh, it seems to have followed much the same thing. It's set in the 60s. You have CIA agent Napoleon Solo, played in this instance by your man Henry Cavill, Superman himself, and he is a elite CIA operative. He's been sent at the start of the film. He's sent over to help extract a German contact who they think will help him track down a uh, criminal organisation that's shipping nuclear weapons around the place. Sent to stop him from the other side and also extract the same agent is a KGB operative, Ilya Kuryakin, played in this instance by Army Hammer, and he's got the same brief but from the uh, Soviet side of the equation. Through a series of contrivances, they wind up having to work together to take down this evil organisation, which isn't Spectre, but it's, you know, something similar. It's, it's some uh, organisation of counter-spies that's trying desperately to alter the world balance. As part of this, Solo and Ilya have to team up against a variety of characters, mainly uh, shipping magnate and and his femme fatale wife, I think it was, who winds, <laughs> up being, who winds up basically being in charge of the whole thing. It's really very difficult to... Uh, care all that much about the plot. It's it sounds like it's got a lot going on. <laughs> it is not the most intricately plotted uh, film that you can imagine. It's uh, it's much more sensible than that when you actually see it play. It's not a terrible plot, but basically it services well enough to kind of move through the film, but that's kind of really the, the whole watchword for the entire film. It's good enough to kind of get you through two and a half hours or whatever it winds up being. I don't think it's quite that long, but it, it can 
just about sustain itself, more or less on the, the charm of some you know, quite nice period detail. And it has a very light-hearted tone uh, in most places, some points kind of strangely so. There's some strange characterization going on. You've got things like uh, Henry Cavill's character in a bowling solo is completely unflappable. And it's quite annoying because he gets into some situations where you should at least flap a little bit, like when you're tied to a torture chair. You, know, you show a little bit of emotion and not just continually just uh, make fun and make make light of everything that's happening to you. Ilya Kuryakin, Army Hammer's character, is given a strange uh, rage control issue, which seems entirely superfluous, apart from basically having him on occasion flip out and beat people up to their bloody pulp, which doesn't seem to really add anything to anything. I'm not quite sure what the point of so, it is. Sounds like it's probably stretching yeah. the remit of a 12 certificate film as well. It's a guy who flies into a bloody rage and massacres but, people every five minutes. It's done in it's done in a light-hearted, amusing style, so it's ah, fine. Okay. I mean, it's, even it does because it even has you know a light-hearted Joseph yeah, Mengele like Nazi. Um, because don't we all just love that for a knockabout bit of comedy? Yes, yeah, so strangely, the, the one scene that is played that's played out and out for comedy is the one where it's him in the background being electrocuted to death in a chair where two people don't really know about it. It's, in many ways, a very strangely toned film. Nazi slapstick <laughs> gets a bad rep. You know what I mean? Man from Uncle is very much middle of the road. It was absolutely fine. I didn't really mind watching it, but I can't in all honesty recommend it to anyone. It's no. absolutely acceptable, a distraction for a couple mm. of hours, but there's not really anything at all in there, apart from perhaps some, you know, there's some really nice locations. It's, it, visually, it looks quite a very pleasant film. So it's, it's got a lot of Guy Ritchie's style to it. Just it has, it, so you're selling it to me an awful well, not that you're setting out to sell it to me, but it sounds like it's being sold to me as very much in the the vein of the Sherlock Holmes movies, which I found perfectly acceptable if overly long. It, it misses it. out on having so like the same like great central performances because it doesn't have Robert Downey Jr. in it. Yeah, right, um, and. I don't really think it's worth criticising any of the actors in it because they're very clearly given some sort of very broad stereotypes to play against and not really it's not really their fault they're not showing much emotion because they've clearly been told not to. It doesn't have that going for it, but there's a lot of kind of knockabout light hearted stuff. It's a perfectly fine watch, but yeah, yeah. it's really not worth seeking out in any great. No, uh, I'd, I'd largely agree with that. It's I was quite looking forward to this actually when I saw that it was Guy Ritchie because I actually really do like the Sherlock Holmes films he did. Mm-hmm. I thought you could handle that sort of double header comedy, sort of straight man character uh, that got a really good performance of Jude Law, which is hard, <laughs> um, and handled him and Robert Downey did really well together. That sort of knockabout, sort of buddy comedy, but with a bit of a an extra edge to it in there. Yeah. Really enjoyed that, particularly the second Sherlock Holmes film. So quite looking forward to the Man from Uncle, and it's a bit of a disappointment. Largely agree with all that Scott said. There's odd things about the tone and you know army hammer's character is fairly emotionless so he's hamstrung by that it does lack chemistry is possibly the word or certainly a, a certain kind of pizzazz or liveliness that the sherlock holmes films had that the man from uncle was missing yeah and as i said it, it looks great because there's a lot of style in it and a lot of it's set in 1960s italy which is basically mm. the most beautiful and stylish time period there's ever been. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think it's telling that almost all of the scenes that I really remember probably didn't have anything to do with the actual two nominal leads of the film. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was the supporting either locations or characters or actors, but not really the two guys themselves. 
in terms of like official style, 1960s Italy, great. Just um, drool of how pretty all that and stylish that era looks. There was some silly, some funny moments in it. Uh, and nobody's perhaps the Nazi character side because that's such a strange choice and some strange bits of tone in there. But nobody's bad in it. It's just nobody's particularly special either. And it's really quite forgettable. It didn't engage me much at all. Again, not awful, but I couldn't recommend it either. Hmm. There you go then. In which case, let's move on to uh, Legend then, which I think, Drew, you're going to talk a bit about. Um, in which, as far as I can tell, um, from what I'm told, everyone involved continues per- to perpetuate the myth that the craze were anything other than a couple of vicious thugs. Yes, um, a point I intend to make too. Um, but yeah, so Brian Helgeland, who is perhaps best known for writing the screenplay for Ellie Confidential, returns here to the world of crime with, as you say, legend, an adaptation of John Pearson's book, The Profession of Violence, The Rise and Fall of the Cray Twins. And it looks at the rise of the twins from smarter than your average thugs in London's East End to them becoming powerful crime lords with mafia connections and celebrity friends and on to their self-inflicted downfall. The role of both twins, as I imagine most people listening know, is filled by Tom Hardy. Now, playing two leading roles in the one film is, at the very least, ambitious and, (laughs) at worst, perhaps, arrogant. But Tom Hardy has more than enough ability to play off of himself, though he has notably more success with Reggie than Ronnie. Here, his Reggie is cocksure charmer, friendly, full of swagger, but with cold, hard steel just below the surface. And Reggie is by far the more interesting of Hardy's double roles. Ronnie, in contrast, and it's Ronnie that attracted Hardy to the film, it's Ronnie that he wanted to play, and playing Reggie as well was really the sweetener to the deal um, for the director. But Ronnie, in contrast, is the sort of psychotic, untrusting, dangerous character full of physical and verbal tics and affectations that, well, let's just be honest about it, actors love to get their teeth into. But I think uh, Hardy here was attracted to the wrong character because he's simply not as compelling a character as his brother Reggie. And also, Hardy plays Ronnie dangerously close to caricature. Certain moments even border on the cartoonish. Elsewhere in the cast we have Emily Browning, who is sweet, likeable and vulnerable as Reggie's wife Frances, and it's through her eyes that the story's told. Alas, the story being told through her eyes means that it's also told through her voiceover. And as with almost all voiceovers ever, the film would be far better off without it. As a viewpoint though, it's reasonably successful, and it does the glamour and allure of their contem- uh, to their contemporaries rather of the power and respect which the twins commanded and then that inevitably gives way to the sordid truth. The character Francis is disappointingly thin though and it's all too easy for her to pass from thought when she's not on screen. Now to go back to something Craig alluded to, he has the same feelings I have about this sort of thing I believe. An issue that I often have with crime films is, um, to an extent, present here. To wit, that we are supposed to empathise, engage and perhaps even sympathise with some particularly odious human beings. 
Now, fortunately, legend spares us from much of this. The Cray twins, Reggie in particular, have an undeniable magnetism and charisma, aided in no doubt by Tom Hardy's good looks. And their glamour and us EastEnders gotta stick together, bruv, ethos tries to explain why a pair of violent gangsters became such a fixture in 1960s London. Little pretense is made that these people are actually anything other than violent thugs, but legend still suffers from, though to a lesser degree, the same problems as the likes of Ned Kelly and Michael Mann's public enemies. By putting the villains centre stage, they become the heroes. But in the case of making the craze heroes, or idols may be a better word, as with Kelly and John Dillinger, it is a case of art imitating life and not the other way around. Uh, when Reggie Cray died 40 years after his incarceration, thousands of people turned out for his funeral because, you know, there were thousands of idiots in the world. Let, let's mourn this vicious thug. But uh, Legend is certainly interesting. And Hardy always commands attention when he's on screen. But while the period detail seems spot on, and a decent fist is made of explaining the twins' allure and their relationship, there is a certain lack of dynamism to the piece that leaves you wanting more. For such interesting characters, and in the swinging London of the 1960s, legend misses that certain sizzle which would make it special, something which Goodfellas with which legend shares much, has in spades, but which writer and director Helgeland has failed to capture here. Nevertheless, it's a very well-crafted piece, and Hardy's performances alone are worth the admission fee. It's also an interesting companion piece to 1990s The Craze, featuring the talents of Spandau Ballet, as it did, <laughs> which, um, actually... Not as awful a film as that would no, make it's it sound if you've not seen it. It's not the worst it could have been, no. Um, so a companion piece to that film, because that took a somewhat different tack when trying to explain the infamous brothers, suggesting perhaps that much of their villainy was due to their relationship with their mother, uh, who's a much more peripheral character in Legend. So, disappointing, could have been better, but definitely worth watching. Oh, interesting. I have been totally spoiled in this film since someone on Twitter pointed out that uh, your fellow looks exactly like he's playing both Chris Morris and Peter Rohan Rahan Rahan from the day to day. (laughs) 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 And I've not been able to take it seriously since I saw that. I I haven't been able to take it seriously since I first saw the sort of the the clips of of, uh, Tom Hardy playing. Who's the, um, is it Ronnie, the sort of the caricature? The the crazy one. Yeah, yeah. Um, As you say, Drew, just from those clips, I found it very, not even bordering caricature, it just seemed overtly cartoonish, and I just, I can't stop it. Very cartoonish at points. Uh, The the trailer doesn't help it. They don't feel quite so bad in context. Yeah. But it's, it's always just only just on the right side of that, and it, because you're always thinking about it, it's hard to, to set that aside and as I said it's simply Ronnie's a far less interesting character he's the crazy one right okay you kind of crazy's been done before and you just yeah. sort of know what the crazy violent thug is like lots of films have had them Reggie's a far more compelling character because he is the he's the confident charming one he's swagger the swagger and he's um He's the one who's got the business brain. He's the one who's level-headed. But there's always that danger underneath of him just losing it. Although still in a controlled way rather than a psychotic way. So I think Tom Hardy's been pulled towards the wrong character. 
but that his performance is so good anyway. I mean, it doesn't really matter which one he liked more because he's mm. great in both. But uh, he sort of got a bit too focused on Ronnie, and mm. Ronnie's a bit over the top. Um, which takes us then on to something of a, a catch-up film. Then on demand uh, recently, you will have been able to have uh, caught up with Fast and Furious uh, Seven, as uh, as the three of us did uh, quite recently. Or sorry, Drew, rather, you saw this at the cinema, right? I did. Yes. Um, myself and Scott watched it recently on catch-up, having uh, never having seen an entire Fast and Furious film prior to this. Um, I was told that I needn't necessarily have invested anywhere else in the franchise before enjoying this. Um, Is it perhaps worth doing a little potted recap of the history? Because just saying, if you'd went back to 2001, I think it was me who walked out of seeing The Fast and the Furious and was told that it would become, you know, <laughs> and there would be another six films of this, it would be one of the most successful franchises in modern cinema. I would have thought you were barking mad. <laughs> another six of these, at which point they'll start saying that there's definitely another three planned. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, well, which of us has actually... Drew, you're the only one here to have seen the entire franchise, right? I've, I've now seen them all. Oh, you've seen them all too, my, Scott. Okay. <laughs> okay, Scott, you give us a recap then. First one basically seemed like a sensible enough idea. I remember, I've not watched this since 2001, so all I really recall of this was it had nice cars, very good use of sound design, a perfunctory but sensible enough plot, and a chemistry between the two characters that might as well have been the chemistry between a plank of wood and another plank of wood. Yeah. <laughs> Which is um, some sort of quote, well, the talents of Paul Walker and Vin Diesel. Yeah, yeah, that was okay. The second film, two years later, Too Fast, Too Furious, swaps out Vin Diesel and places him with uh, Tyrese Gibson. Tyrese Gibson, which actually, something of an upgrade. Yeah, I really enjoyed the second one, actually. Yeah. Not really much different from the same film. It's the same. They're all the same things. These are. I remember you guys reviewing it in our, our last incarnation um, of the website, and um, yeah, I seem to remember that Drew, you'd said it was at least passable. Yeah, I think both of us actually gave it quite a high rating. It was again, um, you know, perhaps Eva Mendes didn't do that any yes, um, Mendes. ill favor, but no, it's <laughs> because it was it was light-hearted. It was a bit daft, but it was fun. Engaging enough performances, um, completely forgettable, really. Mm. But uh, it was quite interesting. And I'm sorry, get, put me straight here because Vin Diesel wasn't in that one, but Paul Walker was, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Paul Walker's been in all of them. Right. Okay. No, well, uh, well, not really. Apart from Tokyo Drift, he's Drift. not in that, is yeah. he? Yeah. Vin Diesel's in Tokyo Drift, barely, briefly, yeah. barely. Yeah. I mean, that was okay. It was more or less the same kind of thing. It's all just car heists somehow always seeming to get mixed up with drug dealers or something where they try and take down an even bigger bad guy, but they're all basically criminals doing these things. First one's probably got the most interesting kind of plot where it's a you know an undercover cop who's then sort of slightly turned towards the dark side, something which kind of shows up here and there again throughout the films, but is not really played on for all that much, uh, all that great effect. Tokyo Drift 2006, I only really watched because work sent me over to Tokyo, so I thought it'd be a laugh to watch Tokyo Drift in Tokyo. <laughs> And it might as well be a film from a different franchise. In fact, I think it is. I think it was probably an initial, an initial D film that someone rebadged with a yeah, Fast and Furious film. Got sod all to do with it, really, doesn't it? Yeah, very different. It was kind of it's been kind of retconned to appear sometime after, like between the, the end chronologically, of Fast Furious six, six and seven, and seven right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. puzzling enough. I just watched Fast and Furious as the as the <laughs> the naming. The naming of the franchise goes straight to hell by going to just Fast and Furious. Just, they dropped the as if that was going to be yeah. distinguish it from the first film. Well, wasn't yeah. that wasn't that marketed as kind of a? It, this isn't a reboot. It's a 
it's kind of well, yeah, essentially a, a refresh, sort of a relaunch of the franchise again with with all the original cast back or something like that. More or less, I mean, it's taken uh, Tokyo Drift and ignoring it completely, so it's not really a it's not really a reboot. I mean, the character relationships are still kind of maintained, but you know, it might you could come to the series fresh from this and not really have missed much. Yeah, and it's the same sort of thing. It's just car heists, lots of shots of illegal street racing, where largely it's just focusing a camera on a woman's buttocks. And then a car. I noticed that featured <laughs> a lot that, in Seven as well. Yes. Yeah, that that seems to be the, the film's main, the series' mainstay for up until certainly up to this point. Fast and the Furious is the last one that's probably overly concerned with the street racing scene or yeah, whatever it thinks the street racing scene is. It's the last one that concerns itself with the fast uh, more than the furious aspects. Yeah, and all of these so far have been more or less fine. Uh, they've not been too silly. They're all enjoyable enough if you like fast cars and chase scenes. I'm not so fond of cars, but the chase scenes so far have been good enough and for the most part sensible enough that I can kind of let it slide. I mean, they've all been okay so far. I think Fast Five is where it starts going downhill as you start getting into territory where it's just being silly. Remind me, Scott, sorry, um, because I tend to, they tend to blur a bit. They do, it's, don't they? <laughs> is four the one with the tunnel under the US border and five the one in Brazil. Yes. Right, thank you. With the the bank vault chase scene, which is um, interesting. Proper silly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think five is the first thing where you see it's, it started to go into the realms of quite silly, uh, quite action scenes. It's, it's a bit more focused on even gunfights at points. Yeah, there's basically all the urban warfare at one point in five. Yeah. The franchise at this point starts getting into a situation where it has to, it has to one-up what's gone before it. Five, it kind of up one ups four with its actions and its stakes to the point where it's still you know borderline acceptable, <laughs> you know just about. It's still kind of semi enjoyable. You've got I think this is the first one where you see the Rock running around who's trying to arrest both Dom and Brian, Paul Walker and uh, Vin Diesel's characters as they've now kind of fully gone off the reservation. So now you've got another cop trying to catch them down, and the Rock basically is. A take no prisoners kind of cop who's more than happy to uh, suplex people through tables first, then <laughs> read them to rights. And I'm down with that. That's fine. It's how he rolls. It's how he do. It's not a way to kind of more ground the film in realism or anything like that, but it's kind of fun. So that's that takes you past five, which is really just on the, the point where it's getting too silly. Now, I would have thought six was as stupid as you could make an action film and not have it just fly apart at the seams the same gang do the same kind of stuff but they're this time the cop uh, the rock has now engaged Dom and uh, Paul Walker to take down a ex-special boat service I think it is agent who is who's now going around causing all sorts of mayhem and uh, capturing all sorts of stuff and it's, it's just quite silly and then you get to Fast and the Furious 7 which mm. makes 6 seem quite sensible in comparison <laughs> Uh, I have I, mean, I have no idea what the hell was going on here. I mean, basics of Seven is that in Fast and the Furious 6, uh, Owen Shaw is this, this fellow who they've been trying to take down. I think Owen Shaw was played by some, who's that, Welsh fella? Um, He's the uh, one with the silly car that was flipping police cars in London, yeah, right? Yes. I saw the yeah. second. I saw the second half of that film, which I didn't realise until after I'd seen Fast and Furious 7. I have I have seen the last hour of Fast and Furious 6. With its infamous 60 mile runway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so as part of that, they have, Dom and his crew have taken Luke Evans' character, Owen Shaw, and 
uh, put him in hospital, which has enraged Jason Statham. And if there's one person <laughs> you don't want to enrage, it's, it's Jason state. Statham. He was in the middle of looking at some photographs of men's penises <laughs> when he got the news, and he is apoplectic. Oh, he's so mad. As, as we see by the opening sequence, which honestly is just... I'm not even sure... Assuming that was setting the tone for the rest of the film, I thought, oh, this is an out-and-out comedy then. This is <laughs> sort of... this. It was it, Honestly, it reminded me of bits of Snatch or something like that. It was just bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. And I thought, okay, so clearly we're not supposed to take this film seriously. And then for the rest of the film, <laughs> everybody in it takes it deadly seriously. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're, we're at Fast 7, so maybe you can take it away, Greg. I, do, I don't... I, Take take no, away, just take it away from me. Take away what? Or my mind. Um, my experience with this film, I I think I live tweeted the first half hour that I was watching or something at the point at which point I realised that I was probably just irritating people and losing followers <laughs> because people were probably assuming that it was um it was kind of put upon astonishment. But I I can assure you that I have never been so baffled by a film and what clearly is its huge popularity. We're, we are talking about the fastest film to have earned a billion dollars at the global box office, if I remember correctly, and I think the fourth highest earning film of last year. Is that correct? Or this year, sorry, this year rather? Yes, I know, it made a lot of money. It made an awful lot of money. And I honestly, from everything I've heard and everything I've read about this film, even from sort of various sort of vaguely respected critics seem to have said, well, you know, it's not great, but it's, you know, it's at least fun. It kind of does what it does and uh, it's a good way to pass two hours. No, no, it's not. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> I don't get where anyone has found enjoyment in this film. It's not even so bad. It's good. If it, had, I watched the whole thing expecting someone to turn to the camera and just wink, which they come close to doing at a couple of points, but they don't yeah. quite. There are two people who are taking this film in the spirit in which it's intended, and those people are Dwayne Johnson and Kurt Russell, right? Everyone else is taking this seriously, and I don't know how you take a film seriously where these people who seven films ago or six films ago were street racers, now, as far as I can tell, are some sort of international superpower-laden crime-fighting team. Yeah, it's, can, it's now a superhero movie, isn't it? Who can crash cars into each other headfirst without wearing seatbelts at about a combined speed of something in the region of about 140 miles an hour, and then step out unblemished <laughs> I don't honest to god I don't understand why these who these people are why they're being pursued why they're being tasked by government agencies to take on work that I was pretty sure we had armed forces to do <laughs> and why everything they do is based around the fact that they've got some cars <laughs> or at least certainly wherever they turn up in a new location they just have cars I don't know where the cars came from. I don't know how they got seven assorted supercars. That's never explained to me. They just turn up in a different country and they have cars. Big, shiny cars. Sometimes they crash the cars. Sometimes they fly the cars. Sometimes the cars get smashed up far more than they probably should. Sometimes the cars get smashed up far less than they should. I don't know. Have the cars got superpowers? What, what are these cars made of? Unobtainium? I don't understand any of it and I certainly don't understand how it made so much money that it would indicate that people went back to see this more than once <laughs> someone explained to me someone explained and I'm, this is not a rhetorical question literally I'm looking to you guys now tell me what am I missing here I don't know I, I honestly struggle to remember I, I don't remember hating it I just remember sort of watching it vacantly 
which generally I struggle to do. Some of my critical faculties, even if I try to switch them off, it's kick in. All I can clearly remember from that film is that yeah, The Rock looked like he was having fun and knew how stupid it was, but yeah. he's also wandering around Los Angeles with a minigun. Um, they pulled yeah. out of a drone. Yeah. They pulled out of a drone. Bullets yeah. that, um, a, a magazine that didn't actually move, which that, that annoyed me more than anything, actually. Um, you stand with that minigun and, and firing it, but the belt feed didn't move. But I just remember, The Rock is um, a ridiculous specimen of a human being. Um, yeah, the, the Rock there. at least had the courtesy to give me a lesson in theoretical mathematics because up until this point, I had assumed, uh, seeking, having sought you know information hidden in books and things, that theoretically, in a three-dimensional um, universe in which we that we experience, you shouldn't be able to visualize a four-dimensional shape. <laughs> and then the Rock walked onto the screen. Has, has he always been this shape? <laughs> There's something about uh, it's. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous, yeah. There's also something about him in that film, wandering around Los Angeles in this in the rubble and stuff with his minigun, that for some reason made me absolutely sound that any point soon he was just going to go, STARS! <laughs> no idea why, but it's like, thinking, it's just, I, I kept looking at this thinking, why does this make me think of Resident Evil? And I could not get the thought out of my head at all. I don't uh, like uh, hats off to the rock because at least he he seemed like he was having fun for the because he's actually not in the film as much as long as you would expect. I just I I love that opening sequence of um where he um is confronted well not confronted by Jason Statham but happens across him one night in the office. Yeah. <laughs> um, a point at which ludicrously and I'm sorry I know this is apropos of nothing I I did at least laugh once in the film and it was the point at which the rock is sitting at his desk in his high tech headquarters with papers in front of him with various criminals on them with a big rubber stamp stamping captured in, in, red, in red ink on these paper files. Who's this guy again? Oh yeah, I remember him. Captured. <laughs> Claimed. I've no idea. I've no idea if that was meant to be a joke, but it completely broadsided me and I did at least get a laugh. It's just a shame it came in the first, what, three minutes of the film? And then past that, I have literally no idea what was going on. Literally no idea. This, what baffled me is that the whole central theme of this film, and I'm guessing it's very subtly done, but I think it was supposed to be about family. I don't. I couldn't. I couldn't tell. I just get that it feeling. Comes up one or twice. Yeah. yeah, I get that. I get that feeling because by the end of the film, I'd invented the Vin Diesel family drinking game, <laughs> where if every if every time Vin Diesel says family, you take a shot. Then at least you don't have to sit through the last three quarters of the film because you'll be rat arsed by that um, point. How is your new liver, Craig? When you'll have had one, yeah. You've needed. Yes, it. yes. Fortunately, fortunately, um, it was paid for by Lycan, the uh, the makers of the hypersport car. Yeah, I don't. Uh, this whole thing is alluded to throughout the film. Um, I don't think anyone involved in this film realised that simply repeating a phrase over and over doesn't make that the underlying theme of the movie, <laughs> and for. For how many times it sort of rammed down your throat? Oh, no, no, no. Family, I don't get. I don't have family. I mean, Jason Statham's character is basically getting in the same deal, isn't he? Because he's also it's basically revenge in his brother. He's getting in so. the same deal, but then they've they've critically overlooked the fact that no two actors in this film have any chemistry together whatsoever, and they stand around in groups like a, like complete strangers. And I'm supposed to invest myself in the belief that these people all think of each other as family, and that they would take a bullet for each other. I can see some. Chemistry between Tyrese Gibson and Ludacris. Yeah, a little bit. Although um, the problem with Tyrese Gibson is that 
his character, not that there's been much character development, but his character's been the same since he, <laughs> um, I first appeared in Too Fast yeah. and Furious. It's like, it's largely to have the fun made out of him um, and to, to not want to do something until there's, there's a lot of money. So and it's, yeah. at that point you can just, he appears on screen, you just switch off because you know exactly what he's going to say anyway. So In all the other films, at least most of the things that were being said sounds like something that could theoretically have been said by a human being at some point in their life. There's not a single line in this film that is of any sense whatsoever. <laughs> no. Even when people were saying, no, I couldn't believe them because everything around it is so stupid. Yeah. I've, I've never heard dialogue so terrible in all of my days, and I've seen some quite bad films. And on, and on suspension of disbelief in a film in which these people are, are, are asking us, or certainly the way these people are conducting themselves suggests that it's supposed to be taken seriously. Obviously, there's an element of suspension of disbelief required in any number of films, and, and certainly in some are blockbusters. There is suspension of disbelief, and then there is what this film asks of you, which honestly borders on some sort of, I, I don't know, these people are apparently tapping interdimensional powers. And honestly, what is, who, who is it Paramount? This, it comes from Paramount, right? I believe. Universal. Universal, sorry, right. Universal don't have a superhero franchise, apparently. I thought, you know. I thought I saw one. The, honest to goodness, the sort of the gravity-defying um, physics involved in this film, and it culminates... Oh, the car in, out of the window. Come on. You, oh, you don't, you don't yeah. buy No, the quick. bit between buildings, I don't honestly forget that. That, to me, wasn't even the most ludicrous <laughs> bit. It ends on the most ludicrous note. It seems to have hijacked probably the stupidest stunt from the stupidest moment in any of the Transporter films, and then takes it up a notch. <laughs> Um, and disposing of one of the head bad guys I don't, I honestly I was so removed from this by orders of magnitude by the sheer stupidity that was packed into almost every frame and from from the stunts to the subtle moments such as, as a, who, who, Michelle Rodriguez's character what's her Letty, name, Letty or yeah. something yeah, as her memories come flooding back and her recall of, um, of, of her wedding to Vin Diesel in which Vin Diesel gets married wearing a vest <laughs> nice fest though oh, I don't honest to god and it's I just I don't understand uh, I just forgot all about the, the Letty subplot mm. and how she's not dead and she was dead and I just I wish I, couldn't, I, wish I still didn't remember how stupid that well, was obviously I, I have no idea what that plot arc is what that character's arc has been but I, if you told me that she had died and had, had risen from the dead three days later I would after watching this I would take I would take your word for it uh, and not to be sorry not to be weak throwing references around because obviously this film carries the the, the, um, the aftermath of, of Paul Walker's sad um, departure from this this mortal coil but I, I and I don't honestly I don't think I don't believe for a minute that they were that they were leveraging it for a, a cheap sort of emotional finale, but they clearly go for an emotional departure because hey, yeah. we're the family. That's why. And um, I, people have told me, regardless of what you think of the film, prepare to be upset in the last couple of minutes. You think why? I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I am quite open, and you guys are this. I will cry at the drop of a hat in the cinema sometimes for reasons I don't even understand. And I, I sat watching this and expecting, I'm like, oh, this is going to upset me, though, isn't it? Nah, couldn't care less because I have no investment in these people whatsoever or their supposed interpersonal relationships. And to be honest, I think the, the scene that people were expecting tears to be emanate from was just a repeat of something from Fast Five, I think. Uh, 
It's certainly when they're all standing around going, people in this room, these are wizards of family. <laughs> oh, so it's not yeah. just this one where he harps on about right, family. No, it's all of this. This starts it's... from the first film. Ah, um, okay. But just um, going back to something you mentioned earlier, just because uh, there's there was nothing for me emotionally in this at all, um, generally there's sentimentality. What might have made me cry is the dialogue, which you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, you don't think it, it, it's really wittily written around the gig. You, you don't think lines like the thing about street fights, the street always wins, is, is superb dialogue. <laughs> oh, sorry, Scott. Actually, he does, sure it, yeah, it, it. I'm not sure he didn't realise that he was fighting Jason Statham and not actually a bit of street. <laughs> You're not literally fighting the street. I, I thought these displayed remarkable prowess. I don't know, has, 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 have we established earlier in the franchise Vin Diesel's skills as a martial artist or something? Um, because the way they yeah, were wielding... For some reason, both him and Paul Walker are very good at the old chop socky for no adequately explained reason. Right, okay. Uh, no, that's good. I was just, I was impressed by the way that Vin Diesel sort of like took a, pulled a piece from his car and just decided to use it as a sword yeah, yeah, or something Diesel, like that as best I remember. Um, early on is basically, he's a thug. He's you know, just a regular sort of brawler. Uh, that's all that seems right. to be established there. And Paul Walker's kind of weedy. Now they're both elite agents. Yes. And they have, un, you know, unstoppable powers and unlimited skills. They've, essen- <coughs> they've essentially plugged themselves into the Matrix for a bit, haven't they, and just uploaded all of these crazy skills. <laughs> and a word, on, a word on the budget, $190 million or something ridiculous like that. And I keep hearing people say that it's all up on screen. No, no, it's, no, not. it's not. Cars are not expensive. Even CGI ones. Yeah, and can I just say that as well, when we're talking about CGI, the couple of seconds of sort of fully CGI Paul Walker, which everyone seems to have brushed over, you've got $190 million budget. Keep in mind we're now, what, three, four years on from Tron Legacy? And CG Paul Walker in the car at the end where the they were being attacked by the drone, with the drones firing missiles, there's a couple of shots there where it was patently CG Paul, and if you, if you freeze frame that, it's shocking. It is shockingly bad. It's not even Tron Legacy levels. You had $190 million to spend on this film and you couldn't even pay the guy the courtesy of actually spending more than five minutes doing a little CG insert for, for a, a talking head bit when he's in the car um, at night as well. Come on. I just don't, I just am baffled as to, and I'm not, I don't say it to be contrary because clearly a lot of people enjoyed this movie. I just honestly, I'm at a loss, guys. If you're listening to this and you enjoyed the movie, I'm not saying this facetiously. Feel free to drop us a message. Explain to me what enjoyment you took from this movie. I would be genuinely interested to know because I was so disappointed by it. I literally got no enjoyment from it whatsoever. I'm just glad that The Rock and Kurt Russell clearly had some fun. Yeah, for, for me, it's, it's the point at which I could no longer just let it coast by on the fact that, for the most part, I kind of respect, if not like, actually, most of the actors that are in it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Vin Diesel's a great actor or anything, but he always yeah. seems like such a a kind of humble, like a fairly down to earth guy. Yeah, you let him off the hook because at the yeah. end of the day, he's family. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. Also, yeah, again, um, he's not in the same league, but and I always kind of think of him in the way of Arnie. It's like he never a great actor, but there's always something kind of likable about him. Yeah, and it's the same with Dwayne Johnson to an extent. It's the same with Paul Walker. They all seem like actually. I'm assuming you forget running scared. Yeah, stars that are not you no know, total idiots, or they're not just self obsessed. You know. I, I actually I disagree with you on Vin Diesel because I've never felt engaged by him, but certainly, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, I'm not, I'm not claiming that he's 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 ever any good in the camera. Um, no, it just no, seems no. Like with, with a few possible exceptions of things like um, Pitch Black, where it kind of fits a bit more. Yeah, but um, it's just more in terms of outside of Hollywood. I just have right, okay. Yeah, he. Yeah, Dwayne Johnson strikes me as a good guy, and 
we all know that apart from blowing Beer's heads off regularly, that Kurt Russell's all right. Exactly, and <laughs> this is just this is really just the point at which I can no longer tolerate the films that they have produced based on goodwill their, alone. Their <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's now you can after about half an hour, it's like okay, all the goodwill yeah. endangered by these people has now worn off, and now I'm left with just this nonsense. Yeah. Geniality so, is no longer a get out of jail free card. I'm afraid. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm Really, just bizarre, and really, actually, quite disappointed because I expected a, a couple of hours of good entertainment, and I didn't even get that. But you know, surely the box office doesn't lie. I um, mean, if they'd kept up the the promise of that first uh, five minute Jason Statham reveal, it was kind of like think, Diet Crank, they, right? Crank light. Yeah, if, they, yeah. if they'd made it Crank Three or something like that, that, I think that probably would have worked far better than what they've actually ended up with, which is just a pile of incoherent mess. Yeah, or if it at least had embraced how stupid it You can't tell me the people involved in this film thought that they were making a great piece of art and that any of this was in any way realistic whatsoever. Like you said, the, the building jumping part in Dubai. Oh, my days. Um, Really, the only way to have pulled this off would have been in a sort of camp tongue-in-cheek, yeah, we, tongue-in-cheek, sorry, um, sense in which everybody, you know, made it quite clear that, yes, we know this is a bit silly. Yeah, it's a bit too um, earnest, isn't it? Oh, it's far too earnest. I think that's what kills it more than anything else. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly not made me want to go back and watch um, any of the rest of the series um, retrospectively, which is um, which is a disappointment. But there you go. Um, from what I under, I mean, other people have told me that there are good films amongst that, but then some of these people said that Seven was great as well. So well, I don't know. I can't really truly recommend any of the series, but that, that is probably because I am I've. Literally no interest in cars other than the utilitarian aspect of getting me to work and back in the morning. Uh, if you're more of a petrol head, I can see yeah. some of the earlier ones well, being a bit more interesting to you. But that's the thing. The at this point, ones, it's like I find myself asking: Is this, if if you're in the cars, right? If you're a petrol head, is this the kind of sort of macho fantasy that that people who are into in cars have? Is this is this the life they envisage themselves leading? No, I think um, if you really care about the cars, the first couple of films, probably Tokyo Drift as well, is more interesting mm-hmm. because. It's been remarked yeah. upon before, but you know, <laughs> people have created graphs and stuff about how how much the first couple of films were about fast and furious was a very basic thing, and then as the series have gone, it's gone on. Basically, the furious aspect has um, become more and more. They've ended up they started off as being about racing and ended up being massive action movies instead of how they began. So the cars more or less don't matter now. I think a great deal of it doesn't matter, to be honest with you, the script being part of that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what they do with 8 then, not. Um, I mean, there is obviously going to be an 8, and from, from what Vin Diesel says, a 9 and a 10 at mm. least. Mm. So, did you guys see the... <laughs> I'm still trying to figure this out. Did you guys see the, the sort of puff piece the interview did? I think it might have been one of the promotional pieces or something of the film, where Vin Diesel described this, this instalment as being for Paul, and Fast and Furious 8 will be from Paul. No. <laughs> I mean, is, is he setting himself up as a psychic? Or? I don't know. I can't rule anything out the at this point. The next generation of Doris Stokes is Vin Diesel. This is the thing. We can't rule anything out. <laughs> On the basis of this, I don't, I genuinely don't know how to take that. It doesn't make any sense as a sentence anyway. <laughs> But if you think of the myriad possibilities it presents in the universe that these movies are set, it could literally mean anything. It could yeah. literally mean anything. To be honest, of this entire series, the only one that's stuck out in my mind at all is Tokyo Drift. 
and that is because it's a completely separate yeah. film mm-hmm. from all the rest of them to all intents and purposes. So if you're going to watch any of the films, I would recommend you don't watch Tokyo Drift, you watch Initial D, which is a better film <laughs> that was made in 2005. There's- so there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of just answer me. There's all sorts of characters who pop up in this film who are sort of seem everyone seems familiar with. Are they pretty much all from previous installments? Like the, yes. the sort of the American young American guy with the shaved head when Dominic goes to um, Tokyo yeah, to collect Han's Tokyo body Drift. and stuff. Yeah. Is he from Tokyo yeah. Drift? Right. Okay. Okay. Lucas Black. Right. Right. Okay. So not that I'm actually interested, but I just kind of had to have that settled. You see, it all makes sense in canon. <laughs> yes, clearly. Clearly. Um, I guess the biggest question based on this would, uh, as far as I can tell, is um, which order should I throw these discs in the bin? Should Tokyo Drift <laughs> go in between six and seven, or should it go in third? Um, but there you go. There you go. I think I've said enough. I think um, you guys probably know where I'm coming from on this. I think we've all said enough yes. at this point. Yes. I could talk all day about this film, and I'm not joking. I made detailed notes. We think it's brilliant. Five out of five. Yes, exactly. Please put us on some sort of DVD cover. Two thumbs way up. Um, I will... <laughs> but way up where, we're not saying. Yeah, I think I think one day, maybe a couple of years down the line, when I've had time to clear my head a bit and, and view this all a little bit more in context, context maybe, I'll, uh, I'll, maybe I'll put my thoughts down in a blog yeah. about this film. Um, but until then, just let me deal with it internally. Just, I just need time, all right? I just need time. Uh, but there you go. I think that just about wraps it up for this intermission podcast. Then um, we've probably run longer than we needed to. But um, there you go. That's value for money, folks. For the princely sum of three, you got all of this wonderful, insightful content. Um, I suppose what's our next stop? I think it's going to be old man action, right? Correct. Yes, you can look forward to our old man action podcast next in about ten days. Uh, but until then, I was Craig. Thank you for listening. Scott was Scott. See ya. And Drew was Drew. Bye bye. See you soon. Bye.